Episode 57 of Fitness Behaviour with Bevan James Isles. An interview with Peter Brown on how we learn. Righto, team, welcome along to episode 57 of Fitness Behaviour, your monthly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness and all the benefits that come alongside it. Team, it's uh, it's a very exciting week for me this week. Well, not this week, just this show is a very exciting show for me. Uh, a few weeks ago, I read a book which I feel is one of the most influential books I've read in a long time. And, and when I think about the way I educate myself, and uh, I really think this is an important area of life is, is how do you learn? You know, like how do you actually learn? And it's just a really an interesting subject to explore. And is the way you learn just based on how you learned when you were a kid? And have you really actually sat back and thought about how I learn and how can I be more effective in my learning? And I picked up this book. I'm not sure how I found it. I kind of randomly find books. And it's called Make It Stick. And it's by a guy called, or three guys, Peter Brown, Henry Rodiger, and Mark McDaniel. And these guys uh, basically have studied... Um, you know, what, what it is to create the science of successful learning, I suppose, is, and that's what they call on their, on the front of the cover of their book. And uh, and I read it and I thought, wow, this is this is a great book. And I thought, well, maybe I should try to see if I can get the authors on the show. And I emailed them and they came back to me and I've managed to arrange an interview with a guy called Peter Brown, who's the writer of the book. Uh, when I say the writer, there's three authors, but Peter was kind of the guy who sat down and wrote the book and the other two are the guys who've done a lot of the scientific research behind it. Um, and I've already done the interview, so I've done the interview before I've done today's intro, and the interview I did with Peter is, man, I loved it, I loved, he was just a great, great man, (laughs) you know, like, I always feel privileged when I get to sit down and and listen to people who are passionate, and share insight, and and, uh, really want to share that insight in really interesting and powerful ways, and Hopefully I'm not hyping this interview up too much. It, like at the end of the day, it's, it's me talking to a man who has a lot of passion and uh, some 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 kind of stuff that to share with you. I can't recommend buying Make It Stick enough. I, 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 it's, it's you know I think it's a profound book. Uh, if you're someone who's trying to influence others in, in their learning, uh, it's got some really important stuff in there. And at the same time, if you're someone who just wants to be a continual learner in life, well, I think it's an important book as well. So, before I get into the interview with Peter, I just want to talk about the patrons. If you want to become a patron of the show, you go to www.bevanjamesisles.com and on the website you'll see just a link to my Patreon page. If you click on that link, what will happen is you'll go through, you'll put your information in, you put your credit card details in, and every time I release a show, you will donate a certain amount of money based on what you want to donate. It can be as little as a dollar, it can be as much as a million. If anyone does a billion, I love you. Although... Highly unlikely. So, um, imagine, imagine if it did. Imagine. I know. I'm dreaming. I'm being silly, but just, just an interesting thought. Um, so, again, for those who have already become patrons of the show, I really appreciate that you guys are supporting the show in this way. Uh, it, it helps me do a better job, and as you can see, I've put more of these shows out recently, and that's because these patrons are helping out. So, if you get value from the work that I do on this show, and it's helped you shift in some way, you know, even you know, throw what you throw at a cup of coffee my way and uh, you know it helps me do better work as well so once again bevanjamesiles.com for the patron link and we can go from there anyway I don't need to talk too much this week we've got a great interview coming up with Peter Brown and he's one of the authors of Make It Stick Okay, team. Well, I'm very, very pleased to have on the show an interview uh, today with a man who's who's been a big influence on the book. There's actually three authors to the book, uh, which is I have to ask him about in a second. Uh, a book that I read about a month ago, and I've actually reread again. And I just it's one of those books that um, I always I love books that help to shift the way you perceive the world and how you can act in the world. And when I read this book, it was like one of those books where, as I was reading it, it was like, wow, the possibilities 
of what they're teaching me and what I can unlock in myself with these kind of skills are really, really powerful. So I thought, I hopefully I can get these guys on the show. And I, I contacted today's interview person and uh, he said he can get on board. And so it's Peter Brown and he's the author of Make It Stick and also with Henry Rodiger and Mark McDaniel. So welcome along to the show, Peter. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So, so before we kind of get into the book, um, we were talking just a second ago a little bit about your history, but I'd love to hear um, maybe you tell the audience like where you come from and, and what you got you to the point where you're writing a book like this. Well, I live in Minnesota in the center of the uh, United States uh, on the Mississippi River. Uh, I made my living as a management consultant uh, working with management teams, and I've always been a writer. And uh, there came a point where I decided I was going to spend more time writing and less time making a living, if you will. <laughs> uh, so I've experimented with many different forms, fiction and nonfiction. Now, I had recently published a novel, uh, which was doing well, and I was thinking about my next project. And I was speaking with my brother-in-law, who is a very prominent cognitive psychologist at Washington University in St. Louis, named Henry Rodiger. And uh, I've known him for 35, 36 years. And he was telling me about this research that he and his colleagues had completed uh, into learning and memory. What strategies uh, lead to better learning and retention of the learned material? And I got very excited uh, about it. And we decided to collaborate on this book, Make It Stick. Uh, And my involvement was because we wanted to write a book that wasn't a book for scientists, but it was for Mm. a general audience. Uh, And so I wrote the book, made it highly anecdotal, but I had to do (laughs) just a tremendous amount of reading and research and learning myself in Mm. order to take the work and and make it accessible for readers. So that's kind of where I've come from and how I got involved in this project, and it was a great opportunity to learn something powerful and struggle for ways of making it easily accessible for readers. I'm going to ask you a really random question before we get into the book. Um, management consulting, uh, I'm really fascinated in the concept of managers because it's it's one of those things in life, uh, as you can tell, today's conversation can go in any direction, but as you can tell, uh, in life, Great managers are a bit of a rare thing, um, and you know we, and we're, we've all experienced managers. Just on before we get into the book and what we're going to talk about today, what do you see it takes to be a, a manager who actually affects powerful change? In my experience, uh, working with organizations, uh, one of the th- things that seemed to make a difference was to engage every everybody on the senior management team in a process of discussion of what they see uh, as the opportunities and threats facing the organization and how they might imagine the organization responding to those as a way of kind of negotiating a plan. To me, a great manager is one who finds a way of really pulling from all the different kinds of people who are within the organization to uh, help focus the organization on the key things that will make it uh, highly successful. And my skill on that, I guess, was because I would – I remember I was hired by a bank, and the president of the bank said, now, don't learn too much about banking because I'd ask a lot of very basic questions about how you price your services and how do you make money and so forth. And those sort of fundamental questions really engage people in conversations that they don't normally have because they have assumptions about each other and what they know and so forth. So I think a good manager draws that kind of stuff out of people and finds a way then to coalesce it into something that everyone can buy into and work toward. So it's almost like they create an open environment where there's a, a better understanding that of what we're all working towards. It's not unlike some of the principles of effective learning where uh, when you uh, are trying to learn something new and you think about all the things that are related that you might know and how they might connect to this thing, you would, you're really drawing on a much broader part of your brain and your body to master something. And that I see that as after I worked on this book project, I got to see, oh, that's interesting. It's like an organization in a way. You want to get all parts of it. All parts of it have resources to bring to the problem or the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think it's it's a way of trying not to stay in your silo or trying not to stay in your comfort zone, uh, but to get out of it and engage people in a little bit of collective imagining and struggling and, and rethinking. So, so you you kind of you kind of get this idea of working with your brother-in-law and, and obviously his his kind of Daniel Mark as well, who Mark McDaniel, who's a part of this process or this book. Um, first of all, what was the objective going into writing this book? 
Well, uh, the um, Roddy and Mark, uh, Henry Rodiger goes by Roddy, I'll refer to him that way, uh, had been approached by a big foundation to, to organize colleagues at different universities around the United States to do empirical studies into the question, what strategies for studying and learning lead to better learning and better memory of the learned material? Rodiger and McDaniel, their fundamental expertise is in memory and learning. And uh, they had fielded this uh, group of a dozen or so cognitive psychologists working with their doctoral and postdoctoral students on a whole series of different studies. And they had come to the end of that 10-year process, and they had what they had learned was so counterintuitive from the way we normally think about learning that that was, it was that revelation that we don't really learn well by trying to put stuff in the brain. We learn well by trying to get stuff out of the brain mm-hmm. uh, that seems so counterintuitive. And that's when I felt very excited about, about their findings because it seemed to validate my own experience in life of kind of learning by doing and, f- and the value of fumbling around. <laughs> and, and so I think our purpose was to put across what the research showed that is counterintuitive, that really is valuable, important information. And as I said earlier, to do it through anecdote, uh, stories of real people and incidents in their lives that illustrate what the science shows is highly effective. When we think about learning, what would you? How would you define learning? Well, learning is acquiring knowledge or skill uh, that enables you, at some subsequent time, to take advantage of an opportunity or to work yourself out of a jam you find yourself in. So, learning isn't just a matter of taking it in; it's also a matter of being able to get it out when you need it, mm-hmm. and to be able to apply it in various different kinds of circumstances, not necessarily the setting or circumstance in which you learned it. So, so in the book, there's, it becomes very clear. And, and as you say, um, I know when I was reading the book, there was this like, you know, I, I wouldn't say I was a great learner as such, if you know, if I think about my method of learning. And as you, as I was reading the book, uh, there was this kind of light bulb moments. So like, oh, that's what I've done. And, and maybe that's why I haven't retained stuff so well. Uh, when we think about traditional learning and the traditional methods of learning, what what are those that people have traditionally used and probably still use to this day? Well, it uh, depends on what kind of learning you're talking about. But let's take, just for starters, uh, some kind of conceptual or academic learning. People typically listen to lectures, they read texts, they underline and highlight text, they take notes, and then they study that material by rereading it and reviewing it, working to try to memorize, to get into the brain this information. Uh, if it's uh, a motor skill, let's say you're trying to improve your tennis serve, they tend to hit the serve over and over and over again. They see some improvement in this, what, what the scientists call blocked practice. You're just hitting that serve over and over, uh, unaware that that improvement is based on short-term memory and fades away. Um, so this notion of of staying with one thing and repeating it over and over whether you're reading it or uh, physically trying to, to accomplish a skill in a sport, a move, maneuver, uh, tends to be the way we approach learning. Practice, practice, practice. Uh, and it, it turns out not to be effective. Uh, we're all wired to forget. It's kind of the human condition. And one of the key things about learning is how do you interrupt the forgetting? How do you... Mm. How do you embed that knowledge or skill in the mind in a way that it sticks and is there later when you need it? So that kind of idea of what is learning is the ability to be able to apply what I've learned at the times I need it. And so that, right. so that memory-wise, that, that, that it's available for me at those times. Right. Two things. One, is it in there? Second... <laughs> Do you, can you can you find it when you need it? Yeah. Because uh, memory, uh, memory, a good a good memory has two qualities: uh, the skill or knowledge is deeply embedded in your in your mind and it's connected to many things that you already know, and the other is it's readily available for you uh, when you need it later. And being able, to, you you will 
we all have this experience. Maybe we come across a smell somewhere that takes us instantly back to our grandmother's house and the upholstery on our sofa or yeah. something. That, who knew that was still in there? And it was a very vivid cue. Smell is like that. Well, we have lots of things in our brains that we, we couldn't call up if we wanted to. Uh, but if you start writing a memoir or some kind of look-back thing, suddenly things start flooding out. So memory is both embedding the knowledge and it's having strong cues for finding it and bringing it out when you need it. It's funny you say that. I, I write a journal every night. I've done it for 20 years. It's kind of just the habit I have. And uh, I missed what you said you do every I, day? I, I write a journal, like a diary. A journal, yes. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, and it's really interesting. I, I very rarely go back and look upon it, but when I do, it's amazing. As you say, it triggers so many other memories, quite specific yeah. to the day that I've written about it. It's quite a fascinating yeah. experience to go through. Um, and I would have never remembered those things you know they were right. quite insignificant but when you know just that experience you talk about there kind of triggered that within me um so so if so traditional memory i mean traditional learning methods uh you you, you know we think about things like concentrating on one topic rereading uh trying to lock in by rereading uh just practicing one aspect if, if they aren't that effective then what should we be looking to do to shift away our strategies for learning uh, well, there's uh, several big ideas in the book. The first one is uh, that you learn something better when you practice retrieving it from memory than when you try to practice putting stuffing it into memory by rereading. So it's much more effective to read something and then uh, put it aside and ask yourself, what are the big ideas in this? Uh, can I put them in my own words? Uh, how do they relate to what I already know? So trying to retrieve from memory is very important. Uh, it turns out that trying to solve a problem before being taught the solution makes you it has the sort of priming effect that when you are then taught the solution, even if you've made mistakes in the effort, uh, when you get the corrective feedback and you're taught the solution, you learn that solution better and you remember it longer. This is something that the psychologists call the generation effect. You're trying to generate the answer to something you don't know. You're polling your mind. What is this like? What do I know? What might it be? And then you are shown the answer and you have this sort of aha moment. Oh, yeah. And it seems to fit into a space that needed filling in your brain. So uh, this notion of trial and error is a very valid way of, of learning. It's a potent way of learning, provided you have corrective feedback for the errors. So drawing something out of your mind through uh, self-quizzing, putting it in your own words, trying to solve something before you learn the solution. If you're going to read a text, you start, you ask yourself, what are the questions I hope this text answers? If you start mm -hmm. with a question and read for the answer, you're more likely to remember what that answer is. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, it gets a little more complicated from that, not very. And that is that when you retrieve knowledge from memory or a, or, a, or a motor skill, it's more effective if you space your practice sessions so that a little you've gotten a little rusty between sessions. So instead of trying to do it over and over, you do it, you go away from it, you come back, you do it again. It's a little hard because you, you can't quite remember and that added effort uh, helps strengthen the learning so spacing out your practice so, over so, time so once I've done important. the initial kind of discovery process is having a gap going back to it and challenging my mind to come up with the answers exactly right it, it, the, the thing that was an aha moment for me in doing this research for this book was uh, to understand how a new learning is goes into the brain you perceive something, uh, it, it's encoded in your one part of the brain called the hippocampus, and it's sort of plastic, it's malleable, your brain is trying to make sense of it, it's filling in the gaps, it's trying to relate it to what you already know. And over a period of hours or, or longer, it slowly migrates into long-term memory. When you pull it out of long-term memory with some effort, it becomes plastic again, and the brain makes the key ideas even more salient and it strengthens the connections to that learning and it strengthens its connections to other things you know. It reconsolidates it in long-term memory. So that the idea of retrieving knowledge when you're a little rusty, that added effort that's required, the mental effort, 
uh, even if it's a motor skill, a mental effort to remember how you held your hand, how you do this particular thing, causes that learning to get reconsolidated and strengthened and better connected. It feels clumsy when you do it. That's one of the reasons it's not intuitive because you don't really feel like you're getting it. But in fact, it's that very struggle that is strengthening the learning and the key ideas and the connections and the pathways to it. And you guys talk about this as effortful, effortful kind of recall, this concept of, you know, it, it kind of takes effort, it is hard, but as you're saying, it reinforces that deeper learning. The other thing that you guys mentioned in the book is it also allows us to, to prove where we have understanding and where we don't have understanding so we can also stay <laughs> focused on where we should put our energy. That's exactly right. We're not very, always very good judges of what we don't and what we don't know. So if we use simple things like flashcards or self-quizzing to see whether we're really on top of it, that has a double benefit. One, it, it is practice and the other is it sort of tells us, do we really know it? Are we really on top of it or not? And so this notion of self-testing or low-stakes quizzing in the classroom is very powerful on both levels, solidifies the learning, and it helps us focus in the areas where we're not quite on top of the material. Well, and also I think in that perspective, you know, like uh, you've got the, you know, who's who's learning what kind of question, you know, you've obviously got people who are studying at university right now and, and they're kind of filling their mind up with lots of information. And then you might have someone who just has a hobby they're trying to get better at, but Ultimately, surely we want to be as effective as possible with our learning time so we don't have to spend any more time than we need to, but we're also filling our mind up as best possible in that time. Yeah, in our book, Make It Stick, we uh, when I set out to interview people in life to find interesting stories that illustrate learning, I wasn't really looking for students. I was looking for just people out in the world. I talked to an undercover cop who had some pretty interesting stories. Mm. Uh, uh, a young uh, female Marine uh, learning how to jump out of airplanes. Uh, uh, an 88-year-old keyboard pianist who's learning and performing classical work still at that age. A neurosurgeon with one of our big clinics here who taught himself how to repair a particular uh, difficult uh, structure inside the skull. So... The ability to learn is something that gives us an advantage all through our lives. Mm -hmm. And the skills that lead to effective learning are really important skills for becoming versatile, uh, successful learners. One of the concepts you talk about in the book, which I found really fascinating, was this concept of... um, Matching the, the the different skills I'm, or, or kind of combining combining the different skills I'm trying to learn, which actually makes me better at the, each individual skill that I'm working <laughs> yeah. on. You, you know, like you talk about the uh, the base, the, the is it the the throwing with a two foot four foot kind of analogy. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> let me tell that story. Yeah. It, so these were uh, grade school kids who were invited every day at gym for twelve weeks to throw a bean bag into a basket, and one group tossed into a two foot basket or a four-foot basket. They mixed it up. And another group uh, tossed uh, only into a three-foot basket. And after the 12 weeks, all of the kids were tested on tossing into a three-foot basket. And the kids who were best at tossing into the three-foot basket hadn't tossed into the three-foot basket during practice. They tossed into the two-foot and the four-foot. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on apparently is, what the research has showed is that if you mix up your practice or you interleave the practice, let's say, swinging at, I don't, you, yeah, I don't know, New Zealand probably doesn't have baseball, but... It, <laughs> but we, 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 we know the game. You know the game. <laughs> uh, a, great, a great study involved uh, uh, batters at one of our colleges are trying to improve their batting, and uh, one group practiced hitting uh, 15 curveballs, uh, curve 15 fastballs, and 15 change-ups, three different kinds of pitches, and they would do... All practice all of one, then the next, then the other. The other group practiced 45 pitches. And they were, it was going to be one of those three, but they never knew which one was coming. And during practice, the ones who got 15 change-ups and then 15 fastballs and 15 curves, curveballs did very well. Uh, they really improved. And those who didn't really know which one was coming, where it was mixed up, 
they improved, but they didn't improve nearly as much during practice. But a month later, when they were all tested on those different pitches, the ones whose practice was mixed up far outperformed those whose practice was blocked. So the notion between the beanbag toss example and the baseball example, and it's true in solving mathematical problems, is if you, in your practice, switch between different kinds of examples, each time you come back to one of the examples, you have to remember again, what is this problem that I'm trying to solve and uh, and and recall the solution and apply it in the case of the two foot and the four foot baskets you're developing a much a more sophisticated ability to judge uh, the distance and the and the motor skill required to to uh, succeed at at the different distances and it, actually it turns out that that kind of practice is encoded in a different part of the brain oh really more sophisticated motor skills are encoded than is the simple repetitive motion of trying to hit that three-foot basket. So the idea is that mixing up your practice, interleaving different problems, uh, especially if they're related in some way, uh, gives you a stronger mastery of each of the problems that you're studying. And you, and you become better later in, uh, say, different circumstances of applying that skill successfully, the, Psychologists call that transfer. They've transferred the learning from the kind of setting in which they learned it into an unexpected setting, and they were successful at it. And this, you get better at that when your practice is mixed up like that. So Again, re- you don't tend to do it because it feels clunky. Mm. Well, and, 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 and as you say, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, it is counterintuitive. Because yeah. you, you think, oh, that, I want to get better at something. I, I practice the thing I want to get better at. You know, whereas the idea of kind of doing adding some different skill components around that doesn't necessarily fit with what we would naturally feel. Right, and one reason is because when we repeat it over and over, we actually do see improvement. Uh, okay, that yeah. improvement is in short-term memory. It hasn't been consolidated into long-term memory, and it doesn't get consolidated. It leaks away. In order to consolidate it, you need to struggle more <laughs> and have the brain make that learning plastic again and make salient again the key things that are important uh, and then consolidate it. And that comes from spaced practice and mixed up practice, the kinds of things that don't feel effective in the moment because they're difficult mm. actually surprise you in the long run. Well, one thing in the book uh, that you guys aren't afraid to do is to kind of be a little bit critical of some of the methods that are being promoted out there and how to learn or at least how to present learning to other people. Um, has there been any kind of negative feedback on that or have people embraced that maybe you guys are bringing a different kind of conversation and different skills to this? Uh, well, there, one thing that I you might be referring to is this notion of learning skills. Um, like VARC and stuff like that. Learning styles, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, interest, I guess would be a word to put, uh, in trying to instruct people in, the, in their learning style. So if you're an auditory learner, the, the theory is uh, you should be instructed in an auditory manner. If you're a visual, it should be visual material and so forth. Well, it's true uh, that we have preferences. Some people prefer to learn something by reading. Others would rather hear a lecture and so forth. Some would rather see a film. But the question that the cognitive psychologists set out to answer is, is there a body of empirical evidence that validates the underlying assumption that you don't learn as well. An auditory learner does not learn as well when the material is presented in a textual way and so forth. And uh, so they did what's called a meta-study where they went out and gathered all the studies in learning styles and uh, held them up against the criteria for good empirical research. And those that withstood the uh, criteria looked at the results, and the answer is there's not a body uh, of knowledge to uh, the, to validate that assumption. Uh, in fact, in, there's some studies that show that when you receive learning in a way that doesn't fit your preferred style of learning, you have to work a little harder at it, and that leads to better learning. So it might be that learning styles uh, are important, but we don't have a body of evidence to, to suggests that that is in fact the case. In the meantime, we know that these other things are highly effective because there's been these studies have been repeated over and over again in the last number of decades that show that spaced retrieval practice and mixed retrieval practice and uh, the generation trying to solve problems before being taught how have a very substantial uh, benefit to learning. So people should 
will do better to focus on those strategies that are known to be effective than to spend a lot of time and effort trying to parse uh, a curriculum into all the different learning styles that might be uh, fitting one of the theories and trying to deliver them in different ways. It's just not the evidence that that's going to be beneficial. So I suppose for those who are listening who do have, uh, who are educating people in the world, you might be a teacher, you might be just someone who's trying to help someone in some kind of skill development to really, while, you know, you could be putting your energy into how do I present using VARC, I'm actually much better off to use some of the skills that we talk about in the book, use this pre-quizzing, all the stuff we've talked about in some of this, a lot more stuff that's in the book. Right, and if a listener is skeptical about that, uh, we've cited at the, at the end of our book, Make It Stick, all the different studies uh, upon which uh, the book is based. And, this, and you, uh, those listeners might take interest in looking up this meta-study on learning styles and, uh, and what it informs, uh, informs us about learning styles. It's, as I say, it doesn't say learning styles are bogus, but it says we don't know. There's yeah. not a sufficient body of, of good hard evidence to say that they are uh, important uh, in an instructional setting. But we do have this kind of list of things over here that have been proven, and so let's put our energy there at least for now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the other concepts that really comes through is this whole concept of um, uh, really trying to to learn the underlying structures or principles when we're learning, you know, when, when we actually sit down to learn, and as we've kind of used some of the skills you talk about and today and in the book, uh, that really the base of what we're learning is more big rules, structure building kind of stuff. Right. It, um, it turns out that, I mean, one of the questions I asked my colleagues, my co-authors, you know, what's the frontier of this of their studying right now? What are the questions that they're pursuing? And one of the questions has to do with uh, so-called um, uh, structure learning. Some people are better, are high structure learners, and some people are not. Well, what does that mean? A structure learner is somebody uh, who can... Um, under who can study a new topic, let's say um, a scientific article, and net out from that article the principal ideas and understand how those ideas f- fit what uh, he or she already knows and build a more complete structure of their understanding of the topic. Mm-hmm. A low structure learner will read the study or the article and uh, have a very difficult time separating the second or third tier information and just netting out the really important pieces and adding them as building blocks to the current knowledge that that person possesses in a way that then they can apply it later. So um, this is closely related to another difference, which is some people are better at uh, rule learning versus uh, example learning. Then here's, that, that would be, let's say, for example, you're looking at different pictures of bird types and you can learn uh, which type of bird it is by memorizing the bird or you can begin to uh, infer certain characteristics of a thrasher versus uh, a warbler versus something else Mm -hmm. and when you infer those characteristics you are what they call a rule learner if it has these particular characteristics and I see one that I haven't seen before, I might be able to identify it because I know what rules apply to thrashers and woodpeckers and songbirds. Um, a non-rule learner, an example learner, will see a new bird and because he hasn't memorized that example, won't be able to identify it. Yeah. So are there ways that we can help people become better at rule learning, uh, uh, deducing from ex- many examples the uh, unifying characteristics that will enable them then to identify or understand a, a certain kind of problem they encounter later and apply the correct solution. We often see that in those spelling bee quizzes, don't we? They, they put the word in the kid, first question the kid asks is, well, what's the root of the word? You know, what, what language does this come from? And once they understand that, they then know where they need to go with the spelling, don't they? Well, yes, but I'll just say, personally speaking, I think English is we we got a raw raw deal as English speakers. <laughs> My wife and I went to live in Italy for a year to learn Italian, and we were had this rude discovery that if you can hear the Italian spoken, you can spell it. <laughs> oh, really? And if you can spell it, you can pronounce it. What a strange concept! It's certainly not true in English, is it? <laughs> as somebody who's always struggling with reading and writing, I, I totally agree. But um, you're right on. Exactly, the, going to the root of the word is a way of 
beginning to uh, go back into our knowledge, a broader base of knowledge that we have in our minds that will inform us to begin guessing, you know, what the rest of this means. you, you talk a little bit about how we shouldn't trust our judgment, or, or not or collaborate our judgment at least. That we, um, you know, it's that whole thing that we all think we know more than we do, and uh, and sometimes it makes us stop learning, or you know, it doesn't really reveal what we don't know, and that we should have these tools uh, to make us really be aware and, and probably upfront and honest about what we do know and where we need to keep growing ourselves. Well, it's useful. I'll say that. I mean. Uh Every uh, jet pilot uh, has got to spend, uh, I think at least in this country, probably every six months, they have to spend a certain amount of time uh, in the flight simulator uh, responding to unexpected emergencies in mid-flight to make sure that they know how to do it. And uh, when uh, Chesley Sullenberger landed uh, Airbus on the Hudson River in New York after hitting those birds and losing both engines, if you read Chesley Sullenberger's memoir about his life, you realize he had been a student of water landings and he had been an air, uh, air accident inspector and he had rehearsed in his mind many times exactly what ended up happening to him. Wow. I, I think I'm wondering a little bit from your question about uh, calibrating your judgment of what you know and don't know. I guess in that case, Chesley Sullenberger clearly knew what he thought he knew, or at least what he'd been studying. Um, the idea here is that just like the jet pilot who's in the uh, flight simulator, we need to uh, quiz ourselves from time to time on the important information that we want to stay on top of and be sure that we don't lose and that we're still good at. Uh, In high-risk areas, it might be simulations that police officers do. Uh, It was just any number of ranges. But on a very simple level, it's it's quizzing ourselves on on material we want to stay on top of uh, and time for the midterm or the final exam. Some of the studies that these guys, um, I shouldn't say guys, that these psychologists have done – where you have students uh, read and reread material, and uh, you ask them their confidence level that they will uh, ace the exam tomorrow and two weeks from tomorrow, and uh, then you see how they do tomorrow and two weeks from tomorrow. Well, tomorrow they do pretty darn well, and they've been cramming, and they get up in the morning, and they can do it. But two weeks from tomorrow, uh, they've lost seventy-five percent of of what they thought they had, and they are not aware of it. They think they're on top of it because they aced that exam two weeks earlier. The students who reread some but are, are quizzed a little bit, their confidence in what they know and don't know is uh, more modest. Oh, interesting. They, uh, but they, it, uh, two weeks later, when they get the test, they've remembered a multiple of what the others have remembered. So they're judgment of learning, their confidence in their learning is a little more modest and the quizzing in fact has interrupted the forgetting and they perform much better down the road. It's those who are super confident and unaware that uh, their study strategy doesn't lock in the learning and interrupt the forgetting. Uh, those That's the situation we need to try to, to correct. And the only correction uh, I think is uh, finding ways to practice retrieving and then holding up that the, the answer you would give or the performance you deliver uh, against uh, the correct answer, correct performance, and making sure I got it or I didn't get it, I got to go study it some more. So, so within our own learning, we need to have these awareness kind of tools to make us actually do that calibration of our judgment and so that we can… Right. Yeah. I mean, you know that in sports. It's true in sports all over. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. one, of, one of the great interviews I did uh, in the course of writing this book, I sat down with a famous uh, – uh, Georgia University of Georgia uh, Bulldogs football coach Vince Dooley, who's got an incredible win re- loss record, and and asked him how he would get his game, his team from one Saturday to the next Saturday, what his practice regimen was, and he broke apart the 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 week to me in little pieces that ended up uh, being 
ex- beautiful examples of all this notion of, of spaced and mixed up retrieval practice. And he mixed it up in speed, fast, speed it up, slowed it down, played it in positions, played it as a team, and uh, engaged in mental rehearsal uh, with, with the uh, football players. And uh, you see on the sports field, uh, this notion that practice shows whether you've got it or not, and this notion of 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 mixing up practice. And one of the things that I've wondered is, well, why don't students who are athletes understand the same strategies will serve them well in the classroom? It isn't just mm. on the football field that they need to engage in that kind of rigor. Mm. Uh, it's also true in the classroom. Um. You guys have big advocates of using memory techniques. Um, you know, uh, memory techniques have been around for years, and I'm sure all of us have seen memory books at bookstores and stuff like that. And some of us may have invested some money in them. But you, you, you know, you do talk about well, there are some memory techniques that have been proven to work, and as a part of this process, we do actually want to be using those techniques. Yes, uh, the word mnemonic, M N E M O. I have trouble. M N E M O N I C, mnemonic. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a Greek word uh, for memory, and these techniques go way back to the Greeks, and it's ways of um, of creating a structure in your mind uh, as a kind of a file cabinet mm. for remembering things. And uh, uh, you know, I remember running into a a Brit one time uh, when we were, my wife and I were visiting Australia and uh, he said uh, uh, old elephants have musty skin and asked me if I knew that and I said oh no I didn't know that what is it he said that is the five American Great Lakes in geographic sequence wow. old elephants have musty skin Ontario Erie Michigan uh, well I got Huron in there somewhere have musty skin in Superior so that's a mnemonic Old elephants have musty skin. There, you can think of all kinds of mnemonics like that that we have from growing up. And there are ways, much more sophisticated ways of organizing a huge volume of, of information for ready access. Uh, Roddy Rodiger, my co-author, uh, is um, running uh, s- studies with DART Neuroscience out, out on the West Coast of the U.S., for um, with these so-called super memory uh, champions, mm-hmm. where they're memorizing um, random decks of cards and uh, you know twenty-seven seconds or whatever, lots of different and really incredible memory feats. Now, this isn't about learning; it's about organizing what you know mm-hmm. in a way that you can get it back quickly. Uh, we interviewed a, a teacher. Uh, in Britain who uses um, so-called memory palaces with uh, his uh, students to help them prepare for their A-levels where there's a huge number of... Do you have A-levels in New Zealand? Uh, we, we do, no, they're not called A-levels, but something like that, yeah. Well, it's really complicated. The, the, uh, these tests are rigorous and it's a huge volume of information you have to have at your disposal because you don't know which ones you're going to have to write on. And so... Uh, uh, this guy, James Patterson, will take his students to a, a coffee shop in the neighborhood and say, okay, now populate the coffee shop with different characters whose names relate to the topics that you want to be able to write about uh, if you're called on in this particular topic. So the, 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 they will do that. And then when they sit, sit down to write the test, they'll remember so-and-so coming in and asking such-and-such and looking like a green plant or something. And this technique, as odd as it sounds, helps trigger the retrieval of the different uh, substantive paragraphs on the topic that they want to be able to write about. And it, gives, it, it lowers their anxiety at test time. It gives them a way of getting access to what they already know. It isn't a way to learn it, as I say, but it is a way to uh, structure it, that you can call it up uh, when you need it. And when we think about that concept of effortful recall, that if we've used those types of techniques, obviously it's, it's easy to get to that place, isn't it? Right. Yeah, uh, I interviewed a professor in uh, biology at the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, who had been following the research into learning and memory, and she she gave me a great little story. She said, "When I'm teaching a course and lecturing to my students, I stop after a few minutes, and I ask them a question on the subject, and they all turn to their notes. And so I say, put your notes aside." Imagine your mind is a forest, and the answer is in there somewhere. 
The more times you make a path to find it, the easier it'll be to find it again in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, mnemonics are ways of kind of laying in a little you know, yellow brick road to each yeah. of those things you want to pull out later. Uh, and um, it isn't um, as complex as... Uh, working with material over time so that you know, ideally if someone plopped you down in the forest of your brain you could find your way to anything you wanted but only through lots of practice at retrieving it in different settings but if you know you're going to be in a situation at the grocery store where you don't want to forget something you can lay out a very simple mnemonic and work your way through the store and it will work very well for you just uh, you know much simpler than what I've described with the uh, with a professor teaching his psychology students how to take their A levels, but the mnemonics will work, will run like gamut. We've actually interviewed Carol Dweck on the show in the past, and um, and you actually mentioned a lot of her work, and I think it's a yeah, there's the whole idea of that. I'm not thick that I can grow is a really important like I know because I my history Peter was I was a total failure through the schooling system so I didn't I left high school not even getting the basic level of qualification and um and it really scarred me I, I really did have this self-perception of I was just a thick kind of character and and I really had evidence to prove that because I'd kind of failed the whole way and so um you know and then luckily through life I actually realized oh I can grow and uh, and my I, I was able to shift my mindset and Carol's work around this whole idea of um, you aren't you you know you aren't just stuck in the way that you think you are you actually have the ability to continue to grow is actually a really important part of us being learners isn't it that's very powerful as what we're saying in our book is that learning is more successful when it's a little harder mm. well who wants to hear that <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> forget it but, Carol Dweck is, comes along. Carol Dweck is a cognitive, cognitive psychologist at Stanford University, and she's changing the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, her studies have shown that, well, for one thing, we know, uh, we know that uh, we can change our brains th- through practice that involves striving to surpass our current level of, of knowledge or skill. Uh, I mean, we know from from uh, some studies that have been done that people who are normally gifted people can become highly expertise in a field through a particular uh, persistent practice, uh, striving. What Carol Dreck has shown us is that if you understand that your intellectual abilities are to some extent something that you can influence, yes, we all have the gift of our genes, but through effortful practice, uh, we have the ability to build new connections in the brain and new mental models and improve our intellectual ability. Students who come to understand that are much uh, readier to take on difficult challenges at which they might fail. Hmm. Understanding that the act of taking it on and of trying it and then learning from the failure and trying again is increasing their intellectual abilities. Students, on the other hand, who believe that their intellectual abilities are fixed by their genetic makeup and uh, are much less interested in failure. Mm. (laughs) They don't see failure as learning. They see failure as an indictment of their native gift. Mm. And so in her studies, she's had students uh, tackling difficult challenges, whether it's solving puzzles or what have you, people of all ages, and uh, they struggle with these things. And then uh, one group has taught about how the struggle actually improves your intellectual ability, and the other group has taken aside and taught something um, useful, but not that. Mm. Uh, and then then they go back and they're offered another puzzle or another challenge. The students who have been taught that struggle improves your ability pick the, the, the more difficult challenges and mm. when they filter back into their classrooms those students the teachers don't know which students have had which kind of instruction those students go on to be uh, higher achievers because they're not afraid of failure and they uh, understand that effort is something uh, is an investment if you will that will pay them back and increased ability carol dweck has had a tremendous uh, reception because Understanding that um, that one has some potential to 
improve his own abilities through that kind of effort is very inspiring. And that helps us when we say, in fact, learning is more effective and it lasts better and is deeper if it's a little harder. And then we have Carol Dweck coming along saying, if you understand that that's the case, actually, you will go on and do better and do more. Uh, it, it paints a rosier picture than just saying... Uh, when it's easy, it doesn't work. Don't do the easy stuff. But that's the case. It's interesting. I had a, a, an experience around this the other day. I, I play piano. And I've, I'm an adult learner, so I've kind of started about five or six years ago. Um, and uh, I've, in the last kind of period of my life, I've joined a band. And I play with these musicians who are kind of really great. And we've just started performing live. And I played the other night. And I was I was pretty bad, to be honest. <laughs> I was kind of terrible. <laughs> and and, and I, it's because I'm not used to playing in front of people. And, and it's funny because a lot of my life standing in front of people talking. So I'm very comfortable with that situation. But as a musician, I'm kind of – my competence levels keep me very – uh, nervous and I, it was pretty much a failure the other night for me and the what I reinforced to myself as much as I was kind of disappointed and put a little bit upset for my performance it was this is a part of the process it's not that I'm a bad musician this is what I need to do to grow and that kind of mindset it's like it allows me to have those moments of failure but to realize that actually this is what's going to get me to where I need to be yeah that's that's a great example. You kind of can loosen your grip a little bit, yeah. and and hear yourself a little better. And I find this is true in writing. Uh, you know, every writer sits down and wants to write something that's like a perfect bouquet, and what you, you and so you don't you can't write because yeah. you don't really know. You know, you have to write a weed patch and then find the few flowers in there, get rid of the weeds, and go with the flowers. <laughs> I mean, life is like that. Yeah. You got to cut yourself some slack to get out there and get engaged. Once you're in engaged in it, the mind will knit at it. Mm. Uh, it's one of the great great things about this notion of long-term memory. Uh, once you're engaged in, in a problem, uh, John McPhee, the, the, the writer, describes it. He said, I'll, I'll be, I, don't, I couldn't get started writing about the bear, so I wrote a, a letter to mother. I want to write about a bear. It's just I'm having no luck at all. I'm no kind of writer. Why am I wasting my time? You know, I want to describe how fat he is and how lazy he is, and he sits in the snowbank all winter long and snoring away. He said, then you get rid of the first whinging part to your mother. You've got to start on it. And then he said, you'll be driving along, and all of a sudden, your, you, your mind is offering you a much more graceful ways to say what you're saying and connecting to other things you could say, and it's, it's at work for you. Mm. So this notion of, of getting into the fray, of getting out there with your music, with the writing, whatever it is in the game, and cutting yourself some slack for the struggle, knowing that you'll get better as a result of being there and doing it, is very powerful. Can I, can I ask, uh, you know, like, th th there's so much great information. And guys, I can't recommend this book more highly. And I'm sure if you listen to this interview, you're probably going to Amazon right now and buying it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's just it's such a Kevin, you, you can repeat the title if you want. <laughs> yeah, it's called Made to Make It Stick. I'll, don't worry, they'll know all about that. Um, by Peter Brown. And, and, um, but the one thing I, I do wonder is, how hard is it to shift? Because, you know, like a, like a lot of these people who will be listening to today's show it will be adults um, and, and they would have, you know, probably traditional bad ways of learning that all least effective ways is probably a better way of saying it. Um, to then start to adapt the, the techniques that you guys are introducing in your book, Make It Stick, uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, how hard is it to shift from, because sometimes we just trust what we know, even though we know it's not that effective. Yeah, well, we're creatures of habit, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, there's little simple things you can do. Uh, well, one of them is, let's suppose you read something online or you read an article in the morning paper and you want to be able to describe it at the dinner party you're going to that night. Uh, what you should do when you're done reading it is give yourself a little quiz. Well, what are the things about this article that impressed me? Um, how would I describe it to somebody? How does it relate to what I already know? And then go back and reread the article and see if you're right. And then when you go to the dinner party, because you've quizzed yourself on that and reaffirmed it, you'll remember it. It's a simple little thing. Otherwise, you're going to be like I have been, which is I read it. I think I'm going to discuss that when we get to the party. And I'm going to go to the party and say, did anybody see that article? And say, yeah, I saw that. I said, oh, gee, it was great. I can't remember what it was, but I really liked it. You know? <laughs> I, I, I was biking with a friend. Uh, uh, we rented bikes, and it required a, a lock with a, a combination lock with a four-digit code. And she said, well, I can't even remember my PIN number. I'm not going to be able to 
remember this. This is uh, hopeless. And I said, well, what's the, what's the number? So the number was uh, 50, 5268. This, and uh, I said, well, just break it up and see if you can come up with something. We said, well, 52 is the number of cards in the deck. Well, I can remember that. 68, 68. Well, that's the squiggly wiggly, she said. She can still remember it a year later, what that combination <laughs> yeah. lock is. And she just paused. She, she made a little mnemonic for it. And there it was. So I would say... Start at simple levels and just do it in the simple ways, and you sort of surprise yourself, and then go on from there. Peter, I'm just kind of more. This is more about you now. Um, what drives you? I think uh, I I get very excited uh, by stories that reveal something true about my experience of life, mm. and one of the reasons that I enjoyed. I mean, writing a book is not all enjoyment for me. There's a lot of angst and knitting of hands and all of that. But uh, I really, really enjoyed it when I could find the kinds of stories that I found for this book. Real people dealing with their daily life who have uh, an, an incident or an epiphany, a moment of, of insight uh, – that then, uh, for my reader and for me, that illustrates what we were saying the science shows about learning. So stories that reveal what life is like, uh, and it might be fiction, it might be nonfiction, that kind of thing, uh, I get very excited by. Uh, it's, um, I, 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 if, if, you've, if you've people who listen to the show a lot realize that they'll, know, they'll hear me talk about uh, I, 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 I'm not fearful, but one concern of mine in this world that we live in right now is, is this emphasis on image, and, and not wisdom. If you know what I mean, like if it's like we look at yeah. youth, we look at youth, and that's the thing we should be aiming for. You know, staying youthful and looking youthful. And uh, my goal in life is to have wisdom, and uh, to, you know, wisdom is something that only comes with age, but also it comes with the ability to continually learn in life. Uh, your book make it stick is to me is just has this amazing ability to teach people skills that takes them down a path of wisdom and i just want to say thank you so much for coming along today peter because i just think uh the work that you and you know henry and mark have done in this book is really important work uh and uh the more that people can learn the skills practice the skills then to me they're going to be heading in that path of wisdom moving forward uh just just before i say thank you for coming along is, is, is there anything else you want to add uh, well, I guess the, for me, the, the, the sort of a bottom line is uh, I, I didn't. I was not a great student in school. I think I wasn't that engaged in it. Uh, but I've been a good learner all my life, and I realized that as I wrote this book. I've been a good learner, and it's it, the notion of just getting out and doing it, getting out and and getting dirty and trying something and learning from that I think is a, a very powerful message that comes from from this and it starts when we're trying to get up from a crawling stage to a toddling stage we're like that as people and if we could go back to that and understand uh, then how to make use of, of books and lectures and all of that as a supplement to that uh, we'd be uh, uh, worlds ahead uh, so that's my personal biggest takeaway from this uh, writing project and uh, uh, the more people uh, find comfort in their own way of doing that I think the better off they'll be just, so I really appreciate this uh, opportunity to be with you Bevan oh it's been amazing um, just lastly what's next for you then what's what's next for you what's next <laughs> Well, I'm trying to go back to fiction. I've got another uh, – my first uh, novel was an historical novel called The Fugitive Wife. I'll have to read it. I'll get it. The Fugitive <laughs> Wife. <laughs> the Fugitive Wife, a uh, young Minnesota farm wife who flees a bad marriage in 1900 and ends up in Alaska. Uh, now writing a novel that's set in Minnesota in the uh, 1860s along the Mississippi River at the time when the uh, white settlers and the Indians were sorting out who's going to live there. Wow. Yeah, so. It sounds like you're a very passionate man who's, who's made some pretty good choices on how to live life. Peter, it's been absolutely amazing to have you here today, and, and I'm sure the audience will absolutely love this interview. The book is Make It Stick. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, obviously, and I'm sure in bookstores all around the place. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Keep up the good work, and maybe sometime we'll get you going again. In the Wonderful. Future. Thanks, mate. Thank you very much. Right, Tim, uh, 
Righto, team, I am back after the interview with Peter, and I have to say, hopefully you got as much from the interview as, as, as much as I enjoyed doing the interview. Uh, as you can tell, there's a lot of insight that comes from Peter and the work in their book, and as I've said probably 10 times already in today's show, that I highly recommend you get hold of this book. And um, I've really tried to become a champion of promoting this book. I've written press pieces about it. I've tried to get it out there to the world because I think it's um, it just gives you a skill set that helps you become a better learner. And as I say at the end of the interview, I think wisdom is one thing we should all be trying to chase in life. And the better we can be at becoming a learner, the, the wiser we'll become in our journey of life. So... Um, yeah, make it stick. I'll put a link to it on this week's show notes, bevanjamesisles.com, and you can go there and you can just click on it there if you want to actually do that, because then I'll get, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you buy the book, go there because I get a little bit of a kickback from Amazon. It's literally like five cents, but still, it all helps. Um, so that's all good. Uh, I, I have to say, it was just a couple of insights in interviewing Peter. Peter, uh, obviously, you know, my job is to get some, some knowledge from Peter as he's kind of sharing the insights that he's gained and the authors have shared in the book. At the same time, Peter was just this lovely man. He was, um, yeah, it was, it was, I, I could have spent time just, I, 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 I was at the end of it, I was kind of running out of time, to be honest, because I only had an hour. And uh, I would have loved to have dipped deeper into the man. He was, an, he was just one of those people who um, just had a really lovely presence. Um, had, you know, and I just, I was, you know, like he was one of those people who reminded me of what I should be chasing in life. And I love that about, you know, Peter was a little bit older. I'm not quite sure exactly how old he was, but he's, you know, of, you know, probably, um, yeah, older. And uh, I can't predict his age, but he was he was definitely older. And, um, but, you know, you meet, uh, that's what I love about certain old people is uh, when you meet old people who you just feel they've got life right. And far out, I spoke to Peter for an hour and we really had a topic we were talking about, but there was just something about this man that was, really it was really nice to kind of see and it was one of those things that it's that whole thing of certain people in our lives have the ability to make us think wow I'd like to be what they are or I'd like to have what they have or you know and and when it feels in the right place that's something I really kind of I'm attracted to and I found myself being attracted to Peter as as a person as he was just sharing his experience and you know look at some of the last choices he's made he's he, he you know, got to the end of his career and he became a writer because there was something he was passionate about. And, uh, you know, and so, I don't know, this is something I thought I'd add to the end there is, is it's cool when you get people in your life where you think, wow, they remind me of what's important and uh, maybe I should be doing more of that in my life. That is a question to think about in yourself. I wonder how people see you. You know, I wonder when you think about how people see me in their, in their interactions with me, what do they get from me? You know, what do they get from me that makes them reflect? Or do they get something from me? And and I don't know if necessarily it's about me changing my behaviours to influence others to get something from me. What I've found in my experience of life is that the more someone is just being true to themselves, the more I'm, I'm in admiration of their character and their person. It's not necessarily I want to be them. Like it wasn't that I was looking at Peter and going, I want to be a writer. It was that I was, I was looking at a man who seemed to be content and happy with the choices he was making in his life, and I found that really admirable. And so, you know, as you think about yourself and, you know, that, that within yourself, how close are you aligned with that? And, and I know maybe I shouldn't be chucking those big questions at you at the end of today's show, but it's just stuff to think about. And maybe just think about those people in your life who have that effect on you, and what is it about those people that's so attractive to you? Anyway, uh, if you want to become a patron, go to bevanjamesisles.com and then go to the show for the show notes. Just one other thing, actually, I will add to that because after reading that book, I, I thought I need to improve my memory. Uh, now, now, don't take memory being the only aspect of, of uh, Make It Sick. There's so much, and that's why reading this book is really important because Peter's done a great job of, as he says within the interviewers, is sharing stories, analogies, examples of how these kind of skills and, and uh, that they introduce in the book, how these can be applied in real life. And uh, memory is only one small component of what they talk about. But uh, after reading the book, I've read it like three times, to be honest. <laughs> but after reading Make It Stick three times, uh, I read a book 
I've, I've bought a book called Memory Improvement by Ron White. And I did a memory book years ago and I definitely learned a few techniques, but it made me realize that I could probably advance my memory a little bit higher. And so Memory Technique by Ron White is, is a very just a practical 30-day kind of you do one skill a day and uh, it's, it's amazing how quickly this stuff you can pick it up like I've been doing it for about five six days and uh, it, it's not rocket science guys it's really quite easy so I'll put a link to memory improvement and make it stick on this week's show notes on bevanjamesos.com and you can do that there um Lastly, patron, if you want to become a patron, do go to Bevan James Isles. Once again, I support, I appreciate the support you could put towards the show. And was there one other thing I wanted to talk about? Something about learning? Mm, oh, you know, I, I think at the beginning of this year, I said that one of my goals was to become a wiser person. You know, like, how can I improve my, um, my intelligence this year? That was kind of my goal this year. And uh, I've, I've done a couple of things. So I've talked a little bit before I have added another meditation technique. I've tried to get a little bit more efficient around some of my planning stuff and stuff like that. But I feel that this make it stick stuff, like I've found that for myself after reading this book a couple of times, I've realized that my learning style is kind of poor. And so what I want to do <clears throat> is, because it is, it, 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 you are trying to shift a habit. And as Peter was saying at the end of the interview, it takes a bit of effort. So I'm making it my goal for the next six months of this year is to improve my learning process and to make a commitment to that. I'm doing a little bit of study part-time, just some fitness stuff right now. And uh, I've been trying to implement this stuff and it's making a massive difference in you know, how we define learning. Am I taking the understanding in and do, do I have the ability to apply it? So that's just, I thought I'd share that with you guys. Anyway, I'll be back in a couple of weeks and I've got one of the Bevan shows. And uh, so I look forward to getting into that. You guys rock on. You guys keep doing what you do. Spread the word about the show. If you want to check out my blogs or anything like that, let me know. And uh, you guys rock. I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks time. Um.